This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. I want to start off in chapter 21, verses 17 to 26. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, See, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They're all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and offering, and the offering presented for each one of them. So if you've been with us through this journey, you know we've been walking through the book of Acts, and we've just been walking through it really, really long, and now we're, we're coming to the end. We're coming near the end of what's been going on, and, and we've seen a lot of things that's, that's happened in Acts, and we're getting, or we've gotten to this point of time where a lot of focus has been turned to Paul. And we had the opportunity to see how Paul started off a persecutor of the church, hauling people off to, to, be, to be killed, people that believed in the gospel. And then God meets Paul and calls Paul on mission with him. And then Paul becomes um, like the front runner of the mission to the Gentiles. And we started to see a lot of the things that was happening, a lot of the ways that, that God was, was moving during that time. And now it's getting to the point in time where the Lord has shown Paul, that he is going to die. Paul doesn't know when or, or where it's going to happen, but he knows he's going to die. Last week, Pastor Aaron was preaching, and Paul, knowing that this is going to happen, he, he goes on this intentional journey to, 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 to touch base with people and, and, and speak some final thing to some people. And last week, he was with the people, and 
There were some people that was there that, that gave a prophecy and said, like, listen, when you get to Jerusalem, someone is going to bound you up and take you away. For them, they was pretty much convinced since they know that Paul is letting them know that, hey, listen, this may be the last time that I talk to you. They was pretty convinced that means that when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to die. So they started to debate with Paul and, and plead with them, don't go. We think this is why God is showing us this vision. So, so you're going to die, don't go. And Paul is like, man, I'm hard-pressed to go. The Lord is calling me to, to go to Jerusalem. So we're following Paul on his farewell journey, and he's now here in Jerusalem, and he meets with, with James and some of the elders there in Jerusalem. As we start off this section right here, when he gets back to Jerusalem, I want to draw some attention to the tension that's inside this text. Now, there's some tension that's going on here. Paul, he comes in. James is there. The other elders are there. And Paul goes in and he's like, yo, let me tell you about all the good stuff that God has been doing on my mission with the Gentiles. And he starts going down and, and, and saying, man, he did this here. He did that there. He did this here. He's telling them all this stuff about what happened during the mission with the Gentiles. And they're like, man, praise the Lord. And then they change the topic. They glorify God and they worship him for what happened with the Gentiles, but they don't linger there. They turn and they change the conversation to how many Jews that are there inside the city. How many Jews that are there that are zealous for the law and they think you're not. This is a tension that we see so much in the Pauline epistles. It's all over the place, this, 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 this tension, and, and it wasn't just happening inside this, this moment. The tension would, would manifest itself at, at, at so many different times. You go to Galatians, and they're like, man, there's these men that came from James, and then Peter, he gets caught up inside the tension at times where he's trying to realize how to walk this thing out. They have these meetings and these discussions about this, this tension that's happening inside here. And attention wasn't attention that's primarily about James. It's not primarily about Paul, and it's not primarily about Peter. This tension was regarding the integration of the Gentiles into a predominantly Jewish culture. This was causing a lot of problems, what this looked like being walked out. It's easier when we're all just the same culture. We're all, but then when God starts moving and he's drawing different people, see, this scenario here, the Jews or the dominant culture and the Gentiles inside this scenario or the minorities. And now that's interesting because a lot of times when you read through the text, there are times where the Jews are the minorities and then you have like the, the, the Roman government was the, the, the dominant culture. And then when, when, when the children of Israel was in Egypt, then Egypt was the dominant culture. But dominant culture and, and, and power shifts and changes depending on the scenario that you find yourself in. Sometimes at a larger level, one people will be the dominant culture, but then at a, at a smaller level, depending on this, the particular circle, 
then who's dominant and who has the power changes at smaller levels in different scenarios. When it came to the God of Israel, the Jews were the dominant culture at that time. They've been the one that's been, been growing up inside of this. They've been the one that was delivered out of Egypt. They've been the one that, that, that's traveled through the wilderness for, for so long. And, and they have generations that have died and raised up and died and raised up while they was traveling. For, for, for them, when it came to the God of Israel, we hold it down. And one of the ways that they displayed their distinctness was how they followed the law. At a heart level, they found their cultural identity in the law. Now, I don't don't trip on them too much because there's so many things that God did during this time when if people did not follow the law, God would have people that was stoned to death. So for them, it had a long history that was tied to it. Following the law, observing these, these, these feasts and, and not eating this and not eating that, all these things of what, what made them distinct. They've lost their land and the only thing that they had left was the law. But it had gotten to a point that they were believing that it was the keeping of the law that made them distinct. It was how they identified themselves as as different from the surrounding cultures, cultures that at times were oppressive to them. They found peace and safety in knowing that, but we all do this thing, and we know that when we do this, that, that we're like a family. They found comfort inside this thing that was, that was a part of their identity. Now, there's nothing wrong with having distinctness in culture. Like, God shows his depth in diversity and allowing cultures to be distinct in and of himself and then still reflecting who he is. There's nothing wrong with that. Every culture has something that made them distinct, and, and it's beautiful, and it's God. Romans had something that was distinct about Roman culture. Barbarians and Scythians had something that was distinct about their culture. And Jews had something that was distinct about their culture. And the same is true now. There's something distinct and beautiful about the distinctness in different races and and the cultures associated with it. There's something that's distinct and beautiful about the beauty and different nationalities and the things that make them distinct. Even in political culture, there is distinctness in, in, in political parties that, that, that causes them to stand out in certain ways. But the tension that they were wrestling with is this. What happens when God chooses for himself a people out of all these distinct cultures? When God chooses for himself a people out of all these distinct cultures as opposed to just one culture, what then becomes the cultural distinctive of this group of people that are also members of many distinctly different cultures? What becomes the cultural distinctive? 
for James and a lot of the zealots, what they believed was the law, the keeping of the law, works, what we did. They believed it was what we did that made us distinct in and of itself. The law became so much of an, an identity piece that if you said you didn't have to do this or you, you didn't have to do that, 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 that you didn't have to do certain elements of it or you, you didn't have to participate in, in certain customs, they, they felt like you was, they were losing pieces of their identity if you didn't allow them to do these things. It's like, what else do we have? We don't have land. We have these things. And you tell me I don't have to do these things. What makes me different from them? And you see this tension arising over and over again as as people are becoming Christians and it's, it's flowing from the Jews on out. Now, What's beautiful is that even though there's this tension that's going on here, even though at times it seems like there's beef, these people loved each other much. The disciples loved each other much. James loved Paul. Paul loved James. And Paul is willing to submit to the thing that James is saying. James loves Paul so much that he's concerned about what's going to happen to him. So so James comes to, to Paul and he said, listen, listen. I know the mob is going to wild out because they've been hearing mad stories about you. They hear like you, there's, there's elements of the law that you're telling people they don't have to do. Trust me, I know them. They're going to wild out. So James is like, just do these things, right? Here's these few things. If you just do these things, it'll appease the mob and they won't wild out. As for the Gentiles, he reminds Paul of the abbreviated list that they gave to the Gentiles. You just do these, these things. But for the Gentiles, we gave them a list. It was a, an abbreviated list, but this, here's the thing that they need to do. Now, what's crazy here is the question is no longer what the Gentiles needed to do to be accepted by God apart from accepting Jesus. That wasn't the question no more. Because like I said, the tension has been going on. They've had meetings about this. There was even a point in time when Peter stands up and he squashes this. He's like, listen, man, I've seen the Holy Spirit fall on these Gentiles and baptize them the exact same way that he fell on us. And they didn't have to follow the Lord to get there. There's a direct line that they have straight to God through Jesus. And they didn't have to follow the law. God has already made it clear that he's coming after them. So I'm not sure what this meeting is all about. Peter's already put that to rest. So the real discussion isn't about what the Gentiles needed to, be, to do to be accepted by God. The real question was, what did the Gentiles need to, be do, need to do to be accepted by the dominant culture of the Jews? It was more about them. What do we need them to do for us to accept them? They couldn't just go straight to God, straight to them. Before they can go to God, they had to first come to us and be like us. And then once they become more like us, then they could become, they could come to God. I 
I see things like this reflected from so many different angles and so many different ways when we look in society, culture, our own lives, so many different ways. And there's so many different angles where different groups at different times and in different ways, giving the context of the group, depending on who's there and stuff, you could tell what's the dominant culture inside of that group. That's even how some people shop for churches and stuff. And a lot of times the people in position of, of dominance are, are always expecting the people that are, that are the minorities inside the group to take on traits of that dominant culture in order to be accepted by them. But here's the flip side to that. Regardless of what that culture is, if you happen to be a member of that particular dominant culture in that scenario, if you don't support or push or even if you dismiss the narrative as false, your allegiance to the culture becomes a question. This is what's happening to Paul. It's like, Paul, what are you doing here? This is what we know. You're part of this or are you really a part of this? How can you tell people they don't have to continue to do these things that are like, man, structures of our history or what we believe in? The moment you start doing that, you're, 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 you're tearing down structures that, that we believe hold our identity inside of it. The reality is, Paul, he didn't have an issue with the law. It wasn't a problem with the law in and of itself. Matter of fact, Paul probably followed the law better than most of the people inside that room. He doesn't have a beef with, with the customs. He doesn't have a beef with the law in and of itself. It was when you said that that was the means of getting to God, and that was the thing that made you distinct. That was the thing that he had a beef with. He doesn't just fight for the sake of fighting. Even here when James is like saying, man, just, just do these things, Paul is like, fine, I don't mind doing those things. I can do those things with my eyes closed. That's no big deal. I don't have an issue with the law itself. Paul submits and he does it. James is like, do this. Appease the mom so they won't wild out on you. Paul is like, I don't mind doing that. I'm not fighting just for the sake of fighting. Then in 27 and 32, let me paraphrase what happened. Like I said, some parts I'm going to paraphrase. In 27 and 32, what happens basically is this. Paul follows the rules that was given to him, and it doesn't work. He does everything that James says to do, and none of it worked. The mob is still the mob. So often we think, here, here's these couple of steps, here's these couple of rules, just do these couple of things, and that'll make it okay, but it's so much more deeper than that. It's way more deeper than just following these steps and these rules so that these people won't act mad and get upset. Then I want to read 33 to 39. Because this is important, because after Paul does this and he just follows what's said, it doesn't make a difference. The mob still wilds out. A commotion starts inside the city, so much so that the tribune has to step in to find out what's actually going on here. These people are wilding out. So 33 to 39, this is what happens. 
Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what, had, what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the, the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people were crying out, away with them. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the, the tribune, he says, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. One of the first things you see here, last week when Pastor Aaron was preaching, he talked about this prophecy of Paul being bound up. You see here that the prophecy gets fulfilled. Paul is, Paul is now bound up. But some other thing that I thought that was important to, to make the connections and, and, and how you see these tensions still even today, you have one thing that's going on where the mob is dictating everything that's happening. We got to be careful when we think about stuff like that because that mob today operates in so many different ways. The mob operates in real life. The mob also operates on social media. And so many times we get swayed with whatever direction the mob wants to carry things and we're just carried and swept away with the mob. You look at what's going on here. The mob is dictating everything. And then look, in 34 it says, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some were shouting another. Sounds familiar? He goes on to say, he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. Sound familiar? So much confusion is going on. Accusations are, are, are being heralded. Nobody actually knows what the real facts of the situation is. And then, and they're accusing Paul of things that didn't actually even happen, but it's just so much commotion and uproar. Even so much so that this dude thinks that Paul is an Egyptian with a, a 4,000-man assassin army. And I'm like, where did that come from? So many things that are going on here. And Paul is like, can you let me address the people? So they let Paul address them. In chapter 22, verses 1 through 11, Paul addresses the people. And when he addresses them, he shares his personal testimony. Now, this is important because when he goes in and he shares his personal testimony, and I'm saying, listen, sometimes... There's going to be so much confusion going on, so many people that are questioning this, questioning that, and sometimes the only thing that you really have to share is your personal testimony of why you know that Jesus is real. 
You know it, man. I, I get it. You can argue this and you can argue that. You can debate if this is real. You can debate if that was real. Look me in the face. You know me. This is what I've experienced. This is why I am changed. This is why I know that he is real. We can't forsake our personal testimonies. He talks to them. He said, listen, I was just like you. I was just like you, zealous for God like you. And then I was blinded by God, blinded by his glory. Now he describes his personal testimony and he, he, he reminds them, I'm just like you. I understand where you're coming from. I get it. I see your passion. I'm right there. And then 12 to 15, he points out what happened when he regained his sight. This is the part I would like us to stand up now. I know after you've gotten comfortable and everything, now I said let's stand. But I tried to warn you. This is the part I want to stand because the fact of what he says here and how I feel it speaks to us. Now from 12 to 15, it reads like this. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, was well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Father, I pray even as we walk through this text that you will help us to see how you've called us to be a witness to what we have seen and what we have heard in Jesus' name. You may take a seat. Paul is talking to them, and he's like, listen, I feel you. You're mad zealous for the, for, for the law. You, you're, you're zealous for God. I was right there with you. And then he goes in and he talks about how the Lord blinded him. The reason why this was important, because he wanted to make this connection. Well, on the natural, I was zealous for God. Spiritually, I was blind. And the Lord showed me that by making me naturally blind. Showed me that I needed to depend on others than myself. The Lord blinded him. And then in his blindness, the Lord allowed him to hear him when others couldn't. And then allowed him to really see him. The thing that is key here is the purpose. The purpose why the Lord did these things. That he would know his will, see the Son, and hear the word of God. Why? To be a witness to what he has seen and heard. Here's the thing that God calls us to be. A witness to how we have seen the Son of God. How we have seen God in the lives of one another. How we've seen God work us out of our own lives. To be a witness to how we've heard the Lord speak to us. How we've heard the gospel explained to us. To know, to understand the word of God. To hear the word of God preached. And be a witness to what, what we heard it say. 
This is the same thing God calls every single one of us to. Then in in 17 through 21, the Lord shows him Paul, and Paul talks about it. And the Lord shows him how he would use persecution to send him out to the Gentiles. And he tells him that. This is everything that the Lord did. I was blind. Then the Lord opened my eyes. And and the Lord showed me he was going to use persecution to send me out to the Gentiles. Now, he had their attention until he said Gentiles again. He was like, here we go with the Gentile thing. Back to the tension. The mob starts wilding out. It's crazy because in 22, he he, they explained it. It said the mob was like, in 22 it said this. It said, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. It's like, it wasn't like, oh, let's kick him out the town. It's like, away. They got creative with how they said kill him. Away with such a fellow from the face of the earth. I'm like, Dang. They wanted him to die. Like everything that he was saying threatened the thing that they held so close to their identity, so much so, he, he needed to be off the earth. Now, from that point between 22 and 24 is nothing but chaos. The mob wiles out. The tribune is there. The tribune is like, what is going on? Here's the thing that's, that's interesting about this that I want to linger on that I think God is showing us something in. In 25 to 28, the only thing that saves him at this point was where he holds his citizenship at. I want to read 25 to 28. Now, you got to understand what's happening here because so much is going on here. And, and the tribune is like, this just doesn't even make any sense here. There's so much wilding out. These people are so angry. They're so mad. And, I, and I'm trying to assess the situation, and it just doesn't make sense why people are acting the way that they're acting. And we got to be able to see that. We got to be able to look in what we see happening in society and culture and know that there is something deeper going on here. Even the tribune knew there's something more going on to it. Now, their assessment was Paul must be lying. It can't just be this simple. So they decide we're going to take him and pull him to the side. We're going to beat the truth out of him because you're holding something back. There got to be some type of explanation why they are so angry. They want you off the face of the earth. 25 to 28. But when they had stretched them out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who was a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. 
The tribune answered, I bought my citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. The reason why this stands out too much so, to me so much, because Paul is able to go to, to the fact that I'm a Roman citizen. He has the wisdom at this time and moment and the discernment at this time and moment, the exact thing to say, listen, I'm a Roman citizen. But the reason why this is so important to us is that we have a citizenship in some way that's much greater than Rome. Us, as the people of God, Paul, for him, he says, listen, I'm a citizenship of, of Rome, and, but we, we got to realize I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. I got to always realize that. The tribune answered, he said, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Basically, he said, listen, I earned my citizenship with my own effort. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. I had no control over it. Man, I wanted to just linger here for a second. For us as people, as children of God, residents of the kingdom of God, citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of God, we have an inheritance that you could never earn. Something that you have to be born into. I wanted to leverage this time to remind us about our citizenship. You can't earn it. This is the thing that connects all these different culture of people together that are in him. Our citizenship. The spirit of the, the living God. You can't earn it. We must be born again. We must be born by the spirit. You see... They thought it was the law that made them distinct, but it wasn't the law that made them distinct. It was God that made them distinct. He just called for them to follow the law. This is what they needed to understand. It wasn't the law. It wasn't the practices. It wasn't the thing that you did that made you distinct. It was whose you were, that you were God's. And he is what makes us distinct now. The Holy Spirit himself, he is what makes us distinct even now. The Holy Spirit himself becomes our cultural distinction. The cultural distinction of those that are of the Spirit is the Spirit himself. This is the thing that people have to see when, when we're looking at different kinds of people. In John 3, verses 5 to 8, it reads, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The cultural distinctions of those that are residents of the kingdom of God is the Spirit himself. 
He becomes a culture unto himself. He becomes the dominant culture and causes us to submit to him and conform to him and live inside of him while he lives inside of us. This is the thing that people need to see, not not even the thing, the person. When people see, see us, they need to see the spirit. That's the thing that connects everybody. The cultural distinctions are the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that need to be markers of those that are residents of the kingdom of God, those that are citizens of heaven. The band can come now. Spiritual discernment. It's like a lost thing. Not being caught up and swept away by whatever direction and wind the mob goes, but having spiritual discernment. And that needs to be a marker of those that are residents of the kingdom of God. They have this uncanny sense of spiritual discernment. The mob isn't telling them what to do. They can see it, and they know when to stand, and they know when to stand back. And let, I'm going to let y'all do y'all thing over there. I'm not getting involved with that. They have discernment. They, 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 they trust in God. Listen. In the midst of the tension, in the midst of the accusations, in the midst of the mob yelling, kill him. You saw a man that still had love. Still trying to reconcile the people. Listen, listen. I was zealous for God just like you are. In the midst of the tension, in the midst of the accusations, in the midst of the mob yelling, kill him. You saw a man that still had love. Still trying to reconcile the people. You saw a man that that trusted the Father. You saw a man that had self-control, when to talk and when not to talk. You saw a man that had discernment, the right questions at the right time. In the midst of the tensions, you saw Jesus. This is what Jesus went through. When the mob was yelling, kill him. When all this was going down, you saw Jesus in the midst of the tension, in the midst of the mob, in the midst of the hurt and the pain. You saw Jesus. This is how he responded. And now when Paul is going through the same thing, we see the same distinctive spirit. Still, Jesus. It's his spirit that makes us distinct. This is what people need to see inside of us. The whole book of Acts is about the spirit of Jesus. The question is, when people are seeing you, when people are seeing him, when people are seeing people on two different sides, do they still see the spirit of Jesus on both sides? Why? Because it's his kingdom. He's the king and he's calling the cues. This morning as we go into communion, we go in with the reality that sometimes you don't have all the answers. 
You don't have the right thing to say and the right thing to do that's going to appease everybody. But as believers, we have the Spirit of God. The question today is, am I submitted to His Spirit? Am I leaning into Him? Am I dying to self that, that, that when people see me, they see Jesus. When they see how I respond to the issues, they see Jesus. When they see how I give wisdom, they see Jesus. This morning as we, we take communion, I pray that you will linger and that you will pray, Father, do people see your spirit inside of me? That you allow the Holy Spirit to convict you. That you will literally pray and say, less of me and more of you, Lord. I want to die to self that your fruits are revealed and seen inside of me. There's so much me that it makes it hard for people to see you living inside of me. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.